0: This semester, we're going to read and discuss various encounters, as you can see by the banners, with Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, The Gospels are the four books that kick off the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they primarily tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Most of the rest of the New Testament reflect back on that story. To understand its meaning and application, the Gospels themselves tell the story, and they do so through episodes in which Jesus meets real people. Um, He addresses real people with real names, real historical figures. He confronts these people, he challenges these people, he loves these people. And we are particularly interested this semester in how these encounters between Jesus and these real people speak to us today. You may know this, but an encounter with someone can be be life-altering. You can meet someone that can totally alter your life. I met uh, Will Farrell at Wimbledon a few years ago, okay? You all know who Will Farrell is, comedian, sort of? I think I'm, am I like 60% there? Okay, good. So, what'd you say? He's tall. He's tall. He's tall. So I was going to the concession stand, and I saw him, and you know, he was kind of incognito, and I said, you know what, I never do this, I'm gonna do it. And so I went up to him and said hi, and introduced myself, and you know what, I really appreciate him, he, he like... He looked really interested, you know, and so uh, he was sincere, he was funny. We chatted um, for about, you know, a few minutes, and that was it. Great story, great encounter, not particularly life-altering, all right? (laughs) And then I've encountered people who were virtually nameless. Uh, A pastor from a fledgling congregation in a remote part of Greece. Uh, an, uh, An early morning Uber driver, whom I've told you about before. A single mom doing all that she could to raise three kids. And those encounters have stayed with me in ways that have altered my perspective, confronted my desires, that have even challenged my character at times. Had nothing to do with their celebrity status or their name. Everything to do with how God was at work through them to minister to me whether they knew it or not. It's possible for you to come here every week and to encounter Jesus this semester in Scripture as a celebrity of sorts, right? To, to see him, to admire him, to appreciate him, and to come away thinking, great story, not particularly life-altering. We want you to know that we really hope for more for you. We hope that you see in these encounters that God is at work through Jesus to minister to you personally. That is to change you, um, to alter your perspective, to confront your desires, to even challenge your character, whether you're aware of it or not. That is our hope, that you would encounter in a life-altering way, no matter where you are in your Christian journey, in a life-altering way, the person and work of Jesus Christ for yourself. So how do you do that? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want to lay sort of a foundation for our semester this morning and give you an introduction. And I want to answer that question, how in the world should we read these encounters with Jesus in the gospel and understand God through him ministering to us? How are the encounters that we encounter given to change us? We're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If not, you don't have a Bible, number one, I'd be happy to give you one, but um, uh, if you don't have one... He'll always have the passage put it out for you there on, on your handout. Let's follow along together. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Luke writes And Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Worship the Lord your God, and alone serve him. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is God's word for us this morning. Let me pray for us and ask Him to teach us His word. Father, we do thank you that um, that You've given us Yourself um, in a text, Father. Um, that you have uh, shown us your ways, that you have um, given us something to read that would, um, Lord, uh, uh, Lord, show us and demonstrate for us your true presence, who you really are. And you weren't bound to do that, obligated to do that. You've chosen to do that out of your grace. And we pray now for the helper, the spirit, um, Lord, to, uh, to impress what you've written upon our hearts. We pray that that would happen and that you would do, even as we've talked about already, that you would change us. Alter us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I've, um, I've chosen to introduce our study this semester with this story because this story, uh, the way it's written, clarifies how I think God intends for us to encounter Jesus in our journey throughout the Gospels as a whole. Okay, That here you have a framework for thinking about how to encounter Jesus throughout the Gospels as a whole. And the first thing that that really this narrative teaches us is that the way that God intends us to encounter Jesus is as the true model for who we should be. In other words, if you want to think about how how to encounter Jesus as you read about him, the Bible presents him as the true model for who you should be as a human being, who you should be as a man. What is a model? A model is a standard for imitation. A model is a standard for imitation. A model is the picture on the puzzle box that shows us exactly how the puzzle should look when finally all the pieces come together. As we read the gospel stories this semester, you'll notice that Jesus will often be called teacher. Um, He'll often be called rabbi. Uh, So a rabbi in in the ancient world wasn't someone who just stood around and lectured. He wasn't a university professor. A rabbi was someone who took apprentices to himself, okay? You'll see that happening in the disciples. He took apprentices to himself, and he lived with those apprentices as a model for faithfulness. And as an apprentice or as a disciple, your progress and faithfulness depended both on how you applied what you heard your rabbi say, but also how you apply what you saw him live out in his daily life. Jesus is that kind of apprentice, He's a rabbi. But our story this morning demonstrates that Jesus was far more than just an ordinary rabbi to imitate. Okay, in this scene, Jesus is doing battle with the devil. You got that right? There is only one other occasion in Scripture where a man personally does battle against the devil. And is there in that scene, tempted to withdraw his own trust... From the Word of God. That occasion is in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the devil comes to Adam in the form of a serpent. Of course, you may know the story. Adam's not in the wilderness, but he's in a garden, which is a tame, cultivated wilderness. And he's not alone, he has a companion, so he enjoys privileges that even Jesus doesn't enjoy right now. He has a better advantage. And Adam himself does ba- battle against uh, the devil. The devil tempts him, and you may know the story, but Adam fails right? Adam there caves to temptation. And the reason I want you to see that is because it's a really important background for what's going on here. Adam was fashioned by God to be the archetype. He was supposed to be the first, the original, the model. And yet in his failure to image God, he became a different model instead. He became the archetype. For all men in our failure to rise above sin when faced with temptation. And if you read the Bible from Genesis 3 on, every man after Adam, every single one of them in the Bible, the Bible records, experiences the same weakness of will and heart that Adam faced. Every man until this one. Now to be sure in the Old Testament there are glimpses, Israel was supposed to, as a people, be the image bearer of God. Like Adam, Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness. That's why the 40 days here are so important. What Matthew and Luke are telling us is that even those who have been most blessed with God's resources and favor, they never live up to what it means to truly be a human being. To truly be a man or woman imaging God until now. Now listen to me, I'm sure as you think this morning, if I were to ask you that you've all at some point in your life looked up to people, right? And I'm sure also what's happened, especially maybe more so in our youth, that at some point the people that you looked up to, whether they were your fathers or a mentor or a superhero, I don't know, right? Um, An athlete, that at some point the shine Began to wear off. So I'm a dad of four little kids, 10, 8, 7, and 4, somewhere around there, okay? And I'm starting to notice that for my 10 and my 8-year-old, the shine is starting to wear off what they think about me, right? Like, they no longer believe that dad just doesn't play in the NBA because he wants to spend more time with us. Like, they start, (laughs) they're starting to get that, you know? But really, the shine wears off in all kinds of ways. And listen to me, as a dad, it's supposed to. The gospel is saying to us, here is a man, here is the only man that you can look at at every turn. And the shine will never wear off. He is the true archetype. He is the true Adam. He is the true Israel. He is the truly spirit-filled one. And he will never fail to show you who you should be as a man. You may get glimpses from others but the puzzle will only ever finally come together in him. When we talk about what it means to encounter Jesus this spring, we are talking about, on one hand, trying our best to imitate Jesus in the lives that we live. When we see him loving the outcast, when we see Jesus patiently confronting people who are self-righteous, when we see Jesus serving those who are expected to serve him, when we See Jesus inviting little children to come to him. When we see him confronting cultural idols, extending mercy, telling the truth, facing suffering, we ought to be saying, this is, you know, this is who I should be. This is how I need to live. So that's the first thing the, the text gives us. The first way to encounter Christ is we encounter him, we come to him to learn from him, and we can expect that our lives will be deeply challenged in the process. And I, can, I think I can say this with, with a fair amount of confidence that as you read about Jesus in the Gospels and your li- own life isn't challenged no matter who you are, then you're missing something. We're not paying very close attention. Jesus is a model has come to really challenge how we live and to show us what it means to be a man. That's number one. Second, Jesus is not only our true model, the text tells us, but we are also here to learn that he is our true representative. Okay, Not only our true model, but second, our true representative. And as our true representative, we come to Jesus not only to learn from Him, but also to rest in Him. Very important. Not only to learn from Jesus, but also to rest in Him. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is our representative? Here's what it means. It means when you read the Gospels that what Jesus does in his life is counted as what you do in your life. What Jesus does in the Gospels is counted as if it were you doing it right there in that moment. Let me illustrate what I mean, and I've told this story before, so if you remember it, bear with those who've never heard it. Um, It's a story, it's a legend of Satchel Page, Right? So um, Satchel Paige, you may know, is one of the greatest pitchers to ever play the game. Uh, Joe DiMaggio called him the greatest pitcher he'd ever faced. Wasn't allowed to play in the major leagues until late in his career because uh, the color barrier hadn't been broken yet. And so most of his career he played um, in the Negro League with the Kansas City Monarchs. And at some point in about 1935 when his career was taking off, people would just come to watch him pitch. Stadiums would sell out. And so he sold the tickets, and when they came, they expected him to perform well. On one of those occasions, uh, uh, Page was pitching, and he had a bad inning, and the next time that he came up to pitch, came to take the mound, the crowd started booing him. He was competitive, and that made him mad. And so he faced the next batter, and he struck him out on three straight pitches. He turned around, he waved to his outfielders to take a seat in the dugout. And they listened to him, and they all went and sat in the dugout. So he faced the next batter, minus three, with six people in the field, struck him out, took his infielders, and had them go sit down. So imagine at this point, it's just Page and his catcher. And imagine if you had to be the next batter. That's really the worst part. I, I don't know what his name is. Trusting their pitcher, they all sat down. They face The batter faces Page, and of course, it's a legend, Right. Uh, Paige strikes the next guy out as well, sits him down, and the inning is over. Really cool story. The reason I'll tell you that this morning is what I want you to see is that when those players went to the dugout to take their seats, it did not matter how good they were anymore. One of them could have been the best center fielder the world's ever known, a first ballot Hall of Famer. He could have been sitting next to the guy that was blind with his hands sewn to his knees. All that mattered at that moment Was how good the guy on the mound was. All that mattered in that moment was Paige's performance. Their destiny was completely wrapped up in him. He represented them. His performance counted for them so that the outcome of every pitch that he threw was as they were pitching themselves. That's what it means to say that Jesus is our representative. That when you read about him, his performance in these places is counting for you. No matter your talents and no matter your deficiencies. You say, Chad, where do you see that in the text? Well, again, it's all over in the background. It's not just that Jesus here is providing an alternative model to Adam. You see, if you read through the New Testament, even the Old Testament, you get the sense that Adam Adam was more than just a person. He was designated by God to represent all humanity. And so when Adam failed, guess what? You may not think it's fair, but you failed too. When Adam failed, you failed. You got his performance. His performance was counted to you. We call that original sin. So the Apostle Paul writes, for in Adam we all die. In Adam we were all counted sinners. And then he writes, so also in Christ, we all shall be made alive. When Jesus reenacts the original temptation here, he is proclaiming himself to be the new Adam. He is the new guy on the mound, who by his performance has come to rewrite the destiny of all who will come to count on him. Do you know that roughly one-third of the gospel narratives are given to the last week of Jesus' life. The man lived for 33 years. And a third of the material that we have about him focuses on his suffering and humiliation the last week of his life. Why? Because though the gospel writers want us to imitate Christ, they make their main point that this man has come to do something that we could never do. He has come to die for us. He has come to represent us as sinners on the cross and to reclaim us from the guilt and shame of our failure in Adam. The Apostle Paul says it like this, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. You Chad, well, why does that matter for how we encounter Jesus? Well, what it means for you this semester is that all the stories that you're going to read about the righteousness of Jesus, that they're literally your stories. These are your stories. I mean, all these encounters are your encounters. When Jesus is tempted here in the wilderness, this is your story of temptation. Jesus being tempted here, this is every temptation you've ever, ever faced every failure of heart and will that you've given into. Jesus is literally rewriting your story so that God looks at you and he sees you every time overcoming temptation. When God pulls out your file, when he pulls out your file in Christ, your file reads like this. The devil tempted him. The devil tempted him at his most profound moment of weakness. The devil gave him everything he had. And yet, this my son, Chad, this my son, Mike, this my son, David, this my son, John, overcame him. That's what it means to have the life of Jesus representing you at every turn. Why does it matter? Well, let me just tell you one place it matters. You know, everyone deals with a sense of shame. After the fall, I mean, just everyone deals with it. Shame is a, a deep and pervasive sense of unworthiness that lies at much of the heart of our fear and unrest. A deep and abiding sense of unworthiness that lies at much of our fear and unrest. And the experts will tell you that shame embeds itself in the stories that we tell about ourselves internally. The feedback loops that go on inside of our minds. So Uh, The story that says, you know, I don't work hard enough. Sooner or later, I'll be uncovered for the fraud that I really am. I can't stop drinking. I cannot control my anger. I cannot keep my marriage together. These are the stories that play as loops inside of our minds that define who we think we really are. i got to tell you, I think it's really possible for you to knock the volume of those voices down (laughs) by exercises and self-affirmation. But I think you need the actual voice of God to put those stories to death. And here in Jesus Christ is the voice of God in the flesh rewriting your story. So that the core of who you are is no longer a man who oscillates between whichever desire is strongest at ever given moment. But who you are as a man is a sealed reality That is literally canonized in Scripture for all eternity. You are a beloved Son of God in Christ and nothing else. So, the real struggle part of it as we read the stories this semester is not just to model our lives after Jesus, but it's to begin to receive and to rest in who He is in those stories as the beauty and the righteousness that belongs to us as men. Can you rest? Can you rest in who he is on your behalf and trust him that his beauty is sufficient for you? That's the second way that we encounter him. Jesus is our model. He teaches us. He's also our representative that calls us to rest in him. There's one more thing I want to briefly touch on. There are many more ways to think about this, but one more this morning I want to touch on, and that is that Jesus is also our true companion for the journey. That he is our true companion for the journey. That we need to encounter him as a true companion. The dictionary defines a companion as someone who is frequently in the company of another. And someone who is employed to assist as a help. In other words, a, a, a companion is someone who is with you and someone who makes it their mission to help you. Someone who is both with you and someone who empowers you. Uh, Later in the gospel, in John's gospel, John records Jesus telling his disciples that after he dies and is raised, he will ascend bodily in in body at the right hand of God the Father to reign over all things. And I don't know if you know the story, but the disciples are sad about this. Now, why are they sad about this? Well, they're sad because they're losing their companion. Remember, he's their rabbi. They've been with him for three years and they're no longer going to be with him. And he says, look, don't worry, I'll make up for it and even more. I'm going to give you myself, my very, spiritual, my, my very spirit, my spiritual personhood, to come and abide in you and with you so that as surely as you have me now, you will have me then. As real as the very flesh that you see before you, as real as the flesh that you touch, I will be with you wherever you go to help you to continue in the mission that I've given you. And what that meant for them and what it means for us is that every time you face temptation, when this becomes your story when you are tempted to to prioritize your appetites, when you are tempted to compromise yourself in the name of power, when you are tempted to put God to the test, you can know that Jesus Christ faces that temptation with you as surely as he was there in the Gospels 2,000 years ago. And you can know that the same power that overcame the devil in the wilderness 2,000 years ago is it work in you and through you to overcome the power of evil that you face every day as a man? As you read the Gospels, when you see Jesus loving people, he is with you to help you uh, show that same love to others. That Jesus is there to, to mourn with you. He is with you to suffer with you, to walk through family chaos with you. He is there to lift your head, to strengthen your resolve, and to bring grace in healing out of the chaos. Now one of the questions I want you guys to talk about this morning is just how do, you, how do you see Jesus in your own life? And Jesus calls on you. He calls on you to see you if you're in him as a companion and friend, as a journeyman alongside with you to get you through the journey. I want to end our time together this morning with a story of when this particularly has mattered for me. Um, about eight years ago, I, was, I worked in campus ministry for a long time at SMU, um, for about six and a half years, and I've been, I've been gone now for five years. But um, one of the things that we had to do at SMU as a campus minister is I had to raise money to support the ministry that God had called us to. And about eight years ago, when I was a campus minister at SMU, I hosted a party to round up adult Potential adult volunteers and supporters for RUF. No students were there. Uh, these were um, friends, alumni, supporters. There were former students there. All of whom showed up at our house to eat, to connect, and to hear about how God was at work through our ministry at SMU. Um, we served dinner, and we served homemade margaritas. I'm um, telling a long story short, uh, short I had um, too much to drink that night. Uh, Way too much. And I wasn't paying attention. I was talking to people and, um, you know, I I didn't eat. Um, Those are bad excuses. And I want you to know I did this publicly. I did this as a pastor. I did this at a ministry gathering. And at some point when everyone left, I fell asleep on my couch and an hour or two later, I woke up with my stomach in knots and I made a run for the bathroom and I didn't make it. I threw up in the hallway. And it was a mess. And I sat down right there in the hallway and I put my hands in my head and I just started crying. I was so humiliated. I was so ashamed. I had made a fool of myself in front of people who respected me. Um, I think I'd raised valid suspicions about my leadership. These are the loops that we're playing. Uh, I was a model of hypocrisy, and I knew the next day wasn't going to go away. Not only would I feel it physically, right, but I was going to have to call and apologize and confront that to everyone who was there. I couldn't hide or fake my way through it. And at that moment, sitting in the mess that I'd created for myself, I got to tell you, I felt pretty alone. And then um, I was a bad Christian, bad pastor, bad husband, bad father. Then the door from our bedroom opened and my wife Jada came out and she walked over to me and she sat down there in my mess and she put her head in my lap and she told me she loved me. There in the hallway floor in my humiliation, she was there with me as she had promised many years ago in our vows to be for better or for worse. But here's what also hit me that night. In that moment, if the gospel is true, then we weren't alone either. That right there in my humiliation, Jesus sat down with me. That he was on the floor there with us. He was in my mess and my shame. You know, all of our instincts tell us that God can only be close to us When we have ascended to heaven. And yet the gospel says that when we could not ascend to heaven. When we were yet sinners. When we have made our bed in Sheol. When we have sat down in our own vomit. That God came near. That he came so near that he became one of us. Men, to encounter Jesus is to encounter God who is with you. It is to encounter Emmanuel. A God who wants to know you. A God who wants to teach you, to rewrite your story, to be with you, to return you to the man that he made you to be. And Jesus Christ, God, is with you. And you can know him without ever having to prove yourself to him. And these encounters this semester, we pray that you would encounter him. You would see him as the model for who you should be. The representative who has gone to bat for you and who makes you beautiful, and finally, your true companion for the journey. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Pray, Father, that it would, that you would, um, as we've sown seed, Lord, that you would bear fruit in our lives somehow, and that you would, um, uh, Father, that you would help us to see the son that you've given um, as beautiful and believable as all the things that we've talked about. Um, God, make us into the men you've made us to be, you've created us to be, that you want us to be. In the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.